Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. everyone and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm your host Kim Simone here with my co-host Mark Lenzi. How are you this week, Mark? Everything is great, Kim. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Doing well. It's Good a busy to, time uh, of year, right? Yeah. It's getting a little chilly out there and uh, you know, still here talking about wine because there's always something to talk about, isn't there? Yeah. The best time of year for wine too. Holidays and oh yeah, yeah. Wine kicks in for sure. Yeah, I think any time of year is good. Is the oh, best that's true. That's wine. true. But more more time with uh, family and friends. Yeah, which we've missed a few years of that. So we we have. So this might be the sort of more the the social time for wine for many of us because we can pick and choose the wines we're going to use with some of those special holiday meals and uh, maybe discuss them a little bit around the table. But before we get to holidays, we wanted to talk about a couple of articles that we ran across recently about some uh, I'd say trending topics in the wine world. Wouldn't you think? Yes. Of course. We're always following what's trending out there. Hopefully listeners like that we hit them with these topics and these stories we find. So this first one is about a, not so much a style of wine, but a philosophy of winemaking called Zero Zero Wines. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about what Zero Zero Wines mean? And would you even be able to see that on a label? That's the first thing I have to ask you, Kim, is, you know, this is probably saying zero, zero, right? I mean, I don't hear this term a lot and, I, and I, I've never really had anything marketed to me like that or mm-hmm. or seen it on a label. But the term is used for natural wines and the, the Press Democrat uh, had an article about these new trending wines, zero, zero wines. Kim, have you ever heard the term? I have heard the term, but not very frequently and certainly not in regards to seeing something on a label or on a text sheet or anything like that. So zero, zero, no added yeast, no added sulfur, minimal approach to winemaking. And we've talked to the listeners a while back about these that were trending natural wines. And, you know, I was thinking about it, Kim, when when I saw the article and I said, I have to ask Kim about this because I like a very consistent wine. And these make me nervous because, well, maybe you can explain to the listeners what's the difference between when natural wines use natural yeast versus a commercial yeast. And then I need your feedback on my issue with (laughs) your consistency issue. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So the thing about using natural yeast, so we're talking about a yeast that is already in the air, in the environment, in the winemaking facility. So I like to relate it a little bit to baking and making sourdough. So if you are making a sourdough bread with a natural starter, you have captured some of the yeast and some of the other microorganisms that are in the air. And that is what is doing your fermentation and your bread rising for you. And it's the same thing for wines. So these are environments where 
because wine has been made for probably years, if not decades, in a particular location, that in the air and on the equipment and in the barrels and just kind of all around in the environment, these microorganisms live. So when you start to crush your grapes and you have that sugar-rich grape juice in your vats, the yeasts will naturally start to to, to kickstart that, that fermentation. And it's not just one particular strain of yeast. There's a lot of different ones that, you know, some of them might work better in a really low alcohol environment. Other ones kind of pick up where those leave off. So it's this complex chain of events that leads to the final fermented wine, which differs from adding that a lot of wineries do instead. So that's kind of more the same of, you know, you have your little packet of Fleischmann's yeast that you pour into your flour and you mix it up and that's how you get your bread that way. So those are really are the two different styles of starting a fermentation. You can either kickstart it with with a purchased, uh, very reliable yeast starter that you know exactly what strain you're getting and you know exactly what characteristics that yeast is going to impart into your final style of wine. Or you can, you know, let your environment do it itself. And your point to consistency, Mark, is that those natural microorganisms that are in the air that are doing your fermentation for you don't necessarily always go by the rules. You know, they don't necessarily do what you want them to do. They're doing what they want to do. So you don't necessarily always get the flavors that you might expect. And it's not always consistent from year to year. So there is a little bit of that question mark about, well, what's the final style going to be? Is it going to fully ferment all of the sugars out of the grape juice? What are we going to end up with? So I think for a lot of people, that's part of the allure. And that is part of the personality that they want to get across about either themselves as a winemaker or their philosophy as a winery. But other winemakers, you know, don't want to take that risk. They want to do a little bit more of a consistent product year after year after year. Yeah, very well said. And, and that natural wines, they, they rely on the natural yeast and they don't know what's going to happen. They just want it to happen naturally. Whereas people who use commercial yeast, they want consistent fermentation. They want consistency for the end product. So they don't want to have to worry that it might not ferment. So they're taking a risk. And you you mentioned it changes all the time. So my thing with natural wines is I've seen changes within the same case of mm -hmm. the taste of the wine. So that's the consistency they're really dealing with. It's so different for me. Like I was saying, Kim, I like to know that if I open bottle one, it's going to be pretty close to bottle two. You know, Not that it could be totally different in taste from the same vintage. So it kind of makes me nervous. And I'm thinking, I don't like that, but I don't also like big wineries, big brands who rely on consistent yeast either. So I'm like, oh, how yeah, can I Yeah, you're sort of like stuck, yeah. <laughs> you know, stuck yeah. between two philosophies really for, for winemaking because, right? you know, you're right. On the one hand, you really do see the value in those either smaller producers or, you know, more handmade wines, more of a product that shows its sense of place and personality. But then on the other hand, and especially I would think as a, you know, as a person running a business, you look for that consistency because you've got customers that you want to please, you know, you've got bills to pay, you don't, right. you know, necessarily want to always leave it up to, to the, um, the, the chances of, of weird things that can go on in a winery. Well, then I'm thinking, 
the natural winemakers or these zero zero winemakers are probably more winemakers than the people using the commercial stuff because they have to really rely on this naturally occurring thing and and they're really just doing the basics. Mm-hmm. But they're the true winemakers, right? I mean, that's the way it was all about years ago. We didn't have all these different commercial products to use. So yeah, the reliance on what you had in your environment. Sure. I guess I'm on the fence. I mean, yeah. so that's the yeast thing. They also don't use added sulfur, which is similar to yeast. There's natural sulfur out there that they're not adding any extra sulfur. And what's your thought, Kim, about not worrying about bacteria or stuff like that? They don't really preserve it at the end either. Yeah. I I have, I think everyone who has listened to me for a number of years knows that I have no issues with sulfur. Um, If used judiciously and in small quantities, just enough to make sure that your product is not going to spoil earlier or have have, uh, bacterial or whatever infections because you've got these microbes in your wine that just aren't supposed to be there. I think a judicious use of sulfur is not a problem and doesn't have really any negative side effects. I know a lot of other people don't agree with that, but I personally don't see the issue with having a little bit of sulfur in your wine. I think it makes for, again, more consistent product, but also that stability in the wine. I mean, I think it's one thing if you have a variety of flavors and tastes either from bottle to bottle or year to year, but it's a different matter altogether when you, you know, literally have bad wine that has spoiled because it's not stable enough. Yeah. And it turns color so fast too. So mm-hmm. I like my wine, not brown. <laughs> so. Me too. So they were, in this article, they mentioned, Kim, who is supporting these zero, zero and natural wines. And they're saying people who purchase grass-fed beef, uh, fair trade coffee, cage-free eggs, or craft beer. What did you think of that? I don't know about the craft beer people. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that stuck out for me because I, I know- As a craft beer person myself, yeah. um, I think that the people who like craft beer are more about the flavor of the beer and the interesting stories behind it and the experimental nature of new styles and things like that and less about sort of the health benefits or not <laughs> of yeah. your of your production method. And there was no mention of organic foods or in that. So I yeah. thought without But I, I wonder if that is j- just kind of goes without saying, perhaps at, at this point in time, we just sort of take it for granted that when you lump those things in, you would also be talking about organic food. Yeah. I don't know. Cage. I don't associate cage free eggs with organic, but I guess you could. But some people do. So have you tried any lately and it, you've been swayed towards zero, zero wines or? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think that it's, you know, something that I'm necessarily going to feel I need to get behind. I mean, certainly interesting, I think, for understanding the styles and understanding what different winemakers are doing out there. And, you know, because it is an important part of the sort of the atmosphere and the philosophy of winemaking now, you know, that these people are out there and are part of our community. So it is important, I think, to know what's going on. I don't necessarily feel like it's something that I'm going to be drinking a whole lot of. Yeah, in the near future. And these wines have no real legal definition. Right. Um, And that's another one. It's, you know, it's one of those things like like natural or, um, you know, like environmentally friendly. You know, there are all these terms that you see on labels that you feel like they should mean something, but they don't necessarily have a a legal definition. So people can use them without necessarily um, having to abide by any particular rules. And there was 
sometimes there's some talk where people say it's it's a classification of clean wine. Natural wine is a clean wine because it has nothing added to it. And then we saw an article that was in tastingtable.com, reasons why you should not drink clean wine. And we mentioned a lot in the past about this whole clean wine thing, Kim. What's your definition of clean wine? Do you think that natural or zero zero wines fall into that category? Um, I guess they could. I think the whole clean wine thing is just a marketing gimmick, personally. Yeah. So I think that the people who are making quote unquote clean wine are specifically doing it from a marketing perspective, whereas people who are doing zero zero wines, I think that there is a certain amount of belief and I don't know if transparency is the right word, but yeah. you know, they truly believe that the way that they are making wine is genuine. So if, for me, I feel like there are, it, it's two completely uh, different categories. And again, not an official term. And like you said, Kim, and the government agrees with you that they feel it is a misleading term. Mm -hmm. So they've been cracking down on that, but they, I don't think I've ever seen anything where the TTB or the government has cracked down on natural wine. If people say, I mean, I could say natural wine on, on any wine and what are they going to do? It's not regulated. So mm -hmm. you could mislead people that way. Same with clean, but I guess they're really starting to crack down on that lately. Is this more confusing for consumers, just like natural wines? No I think one's it is really a little confusing because it takes a certain amount of research on the part of the consumer to understand what these newer labeling terms really are all about. And when they are meant specifically to confuse the consumer or to make them believe something about a product that might not necessarily be true, but is only being used to just to sell the product. I think that that is, you know, doubly confusing. Yeah. And, and people, you think people are seeking out these wines thinking they're healthier? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Whether healthier from like a perspective of I don't want to necessarily add too much sugar or too many calories or whatever, or more from a perspective of, hey, I want to do what's right by the environment. I think that in, in a lot of ways, people are more aware of wanting to do the right thing with their consumer choices. So in that regard, I feel like the zero zero wines maybe are a little bit more what that group of consumers is looking for, even if I don't have an issue with sulfur, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you want more information about Kim, please go to her website at commonwealthwineschool.com. If you want more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. You can find all our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We'd like any questions or comments you have, and we post all of these articles on there as well. So we just talked about zero, zero wines, clean wines. Now, I think for the first time, Kim, we're going to talk to the listeners about vermouth, which is a wine category that's really not talked about or really not covered a lot in wine education at any great depth. What's it really your... isn't. And yeah. I think that a lot of people are surprised when they hear that vermouth is actually made from wine. In a form of wine. Grapes. There's grapes in it, right? right? So, I mean, the production is a little well, the base, different. The base is wine. I, yeah. I've seen you. That, that's the first thing I want to ask you about because I've seen this listed a few different ways. And, and this goes back to, like I was just saying, the education on is I've really never gone through the process, just things I've read. But I've seen it a few different ways. I've seen it where it's just they take grapes 
and they make a must, but they don't ferment it. And then they add spirits to it. And then I've seen it where it's fermented, but most of the time I've seen it's unfermented great. So it's technically what what I've seen, unless you see it different. It sounds like you've seen it different. Well, there's, unless there's two different versions where there's a wine base that's added to uh, spirits, or there's just a must that they add spirits to. Have you seen it both ways? I have seen it more that the base liquid is wine, and then there are other things added to it. So you've got fruits and you've got herbs and then you've got a spirit that bumps up the alcohol content and also makes it um, more stable. So almost like making a fortified wine or a product like Lillet. Right. Where, aromatized um, wine. Is that what they... Aromatized, aromatized wine. Aromatized, yeah. 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 So there's, you know, a wine base, but then there's all of this other stuff that's added to it that gives it its character and gives it its personality and gives it its its kind of oomphy slightly higher alcohol than just a regular right. old wine. And I was surprised that it's really hit an historic drink, which dates back, you know, 16th century, mostly Northern Italy in the Piedmont region, mm-hmm. uh, but has a big history to it. And, and most of the listeners are probably familiar, like you are, Kim, using it just for cocktails. Yeah, as a mixer, you know, not necessarily something that you want to or that you would even consider sort of drinking on its own. And the flavors can really vary very widely. And, and you know, I think that we generally think of a vermouth as a little bit to your uh, to your vodka, or your gin to make a martini or you add a little bit of red to make to make a Negroni. But there are a lot of different styles out there and some of them can be very pleasantly drunk, just, you know, straight or on the rocks or with soda or something like that. I've never tr- just tried it on its own. Have you? There, so <laughs> I have. Um, there are a few brands out there that are, I think, a, a little bit more kind of fruit forward, a little less bitter because I don't tend to to gravitate towards the more bitter liqueurs. Uh, but a friend of mine had a really wonderful red vermouth that we used to make. What, what did I just say? What cocktail? Um, Negroni. Negroni. Yeah. Negroni's a few months ago. And I had a little bit of it on its own. And it was really quite tasty. I wish I remembered what brand it was. Well, you mentioned red. I mean, the styles are usually red, white, and there is a rosé. And they're usually dry or sweet. So usually the dry version you use with gin for martini, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, sweet you would use for Manhattans with whiskey or bourbons. And it's interesting because there's big brands, I mean, Stock and Gallo, uh, Martini and Rossi, but there are some really craft versions of it that, I mean, the typical ones are like, you know, 10 bucks, but there's some $40 vermouths out there that it's hard to get a feel on what people would buy those, but there are some callings for that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for our high-end Negronis. <laughs> those, are, yeah. those are what you want to use because they have a you know a lot more flavor and, and I feel like a, a much more um, pleasant drinking experience. Yeah. And you mentioned it's herbal. They have certain things, different producers use different uh, things to make it aromatic or mm-hmm. and to fortify. Would you ever use this for cooking? Because they did mention in the article uh, that was in foodwine.com that you can cook with vermouth, but I, I never recommend it. Really? Because I, I cook with vermouth all the time. You do. So what I do you, do. what is the advantage of using vermouth. So I like that little bit of uh, herbal character that white vermouth gives for like deglazing a pan or making a little bit of a pan sauce. But often what I will do when I'm making onion soup is I'll use red vermouth in it because I like the little bit of spice. And again, that bit of herb and it 
it has that little hit of red wine character. And I just I feel like it adds just a nice round sort of extra mysterious flavor. So I will almost always add red vermouth to my French onion soup. That sounds There's good. my little secret of the day. Yeah. Oh, you always have a little cooking tip. <laughs> and there was an article in tastingtable.com, reasons you should finish your vermouth. And people always ask this when they buy it, you know, they use like a splash of it. Some people spray yeah. it in their drinks. So do you have a tip that... Do you keep it in the fridge? Do you keep it for a certain amount of time? Well, I'm going to keep it in the fridge now after reading these articles because, you know, it does make sense. There were two articles that were talking about how do you store your vermouth and and everyone is saying that you should treat it like wine, you know, keep it in the refrigerator. It's not going to last forever. It's not like a bottle of whiskey. You know, it's much more delicate. So I was, I was reading these articles and I yelled to my husband. I'm like, hey, do you know we're supposed to be keeping the vermouth in the fridge and not That's in the bar? So and he's like, I that. didn't know that. I'm like, I didn't know that either. But now wow. we know. So I guess I need to make a little bit of room uh, in the wine fridge for the vermouth. So once you opened your vermouth, did you try to do anything to take the, the air away from it to put it no, in a smaller container? No, I never knew container? I was no. supposed to. But did now you keep I know. it for a long time? Yeah, usually. Although, I mean, my husband likes martinis, so we go through white vermouth pretty consistently over in the summertime. But I, I think I've had that red bottle of red vermouth open for probably a year wow. in my bar. But it is <laughs> Maybe higher it's alcohol. time to move on. It is higher alcohol, so it, it would typically last a little longer. And it's already pretty much spiced up. So mm -hmm. did you notice it was losing anything over the time? I haven't really paid that much attention. I know bad wine yeah. expert not paying attention yeah. to, <laughs> I'm curious to how now, my, so to how my put, open bottles are aging. But And you did put it in the fridge now. I did now. Yeah. So I'm curious if you're going to notice any different. Yeah, we'll difference. see. I might just need to uh, get a few new open bottles, uh, a few new new bottles and then start storing them right right from the beginning. I guess there's no doubt. I mean, if you put a cool vermouth in your drink, you put right put an ice in it anyway, right? Yeah, so so it's, I mean, it's not fine. like it's yeah. And they said what, 2 months you can put it leave it in the fridge only 2 months, right? That's not a long or, time or for yeah. for a, you know, for something that you're probably not going to use all that much of at any given time. For you that was keeping it on your bar shelf for 2 years or a year, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> 2 months. That's interesting. That isn't a Lacker. lot of time. And that's in the fridge. So out of the fridge, it's probably a month or a couple of weeks. I guess saying. I got to go check out my vermouth. Yeah, you got to start dating them or something. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> right on the bottle when uh, I open it. Anything else with vermouth you think we should tell the listeners, Kim? Just that, you know, ex explore what's out there. If this sounds like an intriguing thing for you, if you like Amaro, you know, if you like Camparis, if you like things that have that little bit of herbal bitterness to them and you're curious, you know, um, buy yourself a bottle of maybe slightly higher end vermouth and uh, and see what you can do with it. There's a lot of resources online for looking up cocktail recipes to use certain ingredients. Um, and this is certainly one of the ones that I think bartenders have been um, very creative with recently. So there's a lot of information out there uh, online for what you can do with it. And you did mention about how different brands have different flavors of them. Mm -hmm. And and I thought it was interesting. They, they mentioned that it's uh, the fruit spice or it's floral or it's botanicals or it could be ginger or something like that. I think that's something I should pay more attention to when I'm picking styles to sell. 
mm. because I'm sure they list or, or maybe they don't. It's like their secret sauce or something. Yeah. But there's got to be different profiles so that you probably want one that's more spice or more fruit or something like you were mentioning earlier, a fruitier yeah. version. Well, just like different brands of gin, you know, have different primary right, right. aromas and flavors. Vermouth is the same way. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We, we post all of our articles that we discuss on our Facebook page. Feel free to leave us your questions and comments, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers! Wine, wine.